um, Wednesday, pretty much uh, our world changed. Whether you think it's for the better or for the worse, um, things changed a lot. Uh, Wednesday morning when we awoke to the news that uh, Donald Trump has been elected the 45th president of the United States of America. I don't know what you were uh, thinking or feeling, but I'm sure you do, and I'm sure you probably won't soon forget uh, the emotions and the uh, thoughts that were going through your mind as you uh, heard the news, you woke up to the news, some were shocked, some were upset, but one of the things at our Wednesday prayer meeting uh, as we got together, uh, I just allowed people to share what are some of the things that are going on in your heart as you uh, process through this, not even 24 hours after the news, uh, that we have, uh, we have a, a new president-elect. Uh, confusion, sadness, shock, uh, despair, uh, fear, whole gamut of emotions uh, as people were sharing and, and testifying. I think um, it's, you know, I, we all had some kind of emotion in the midst of, of all of it. Uh, there were some who, especially amongst Christians, I mean, this is a really challenging thing. There are some Christians who said, how could you vote for Donald Trump as a Christian? And then there are others who said, how could you vote for Hillary Clinton as a Christian? There were some who said, how could you, as a Christian, how could you not vote for Donald Trump? And there were some on the other side who said, as a Christian, how could you not vote for Hillary Clinton? I mean, there was, there was people everywhere. There were some who said, it's like, you know, one person represents all that is bad about humanity. And then there are others who said, the other represents all that is bad about the government. Someone said to me last weekend, it's like choosing between, okay, do you want heart attack or do you want cancer? Like, which one of these do you want? It's confusing because not, that was not only the stuff going on, the conversations in the world, but that's what the conversation within the church was like also. And there was a lot of confusion because well-meaning, Bible-believing, I love Jesus with all of my heart Christians were saying, I'm voting for one, while they're having conversations with others who believe the same thing in their heart of hearts about Jesus, but they're voting for the other. And so what's ended up happening is there's been a lot of mudslinging and a lot of throwing of tomatoes and eggs and a lot of confusion. And in many ways, uh, the witness of the church, right? You've heard this term, evangelical Christian, has been dragged through the mud in so many different contexts and so many different media outlets and, and different places that you hear about. And so the witness of the church has become a little bit tarnished and people are wondering, what is the role of the church what is evangelical Christianity? Where does the church stand? Where do they go moving forward? I don't, I'm not going to talk about politics. That's not my, and you, don't, you didn't come here to listen. I didn't study political science. I didn't study government. I studied psychology. <laughs> In seminary, I went to, I, I studied the Bible. So I'm going to teach you what I know because I believe that you're here to hear not what Fox News and Facebook says, but to hear what God says. Because you're not here to find out, oh, you know what, he's just saying what CNN said. No, you want to hear what Scripture says, and that's what I want to bring to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth, to a church that was in a very similar situation, extremely secular, on the verges of being marginalized, but they had a, a certain reputation. In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, as you turn to chapter 13, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about the reputation of the church. You guys know a lot of scripture. You are gifted in many ways. 
You have a plethora of talents that you can offer. And that's not unlike the church today. We know the Bible. We've got a lot of gifts and a lot of talents, a lot of potential. And so at the outer level, the reputation of the church is, man, they've got a lot to offer. But Paul writes in chapter 3, however, here's your reality. I want to say you're mature as a church, but you're not really. The reason why? Because you're constantly bickering and complaining. He says, this is why I couldn't call you a mature church, because you're not being who you are called to be. And then he goes on to write, here's what the church ought to look like. This is what the church ought to look like. There are certain things that the church brings to the world that the world doesn't have. And I believe that this is what God is wanting us to bring to the world today as the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, very simple. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. What do we see in our world? Uh, What does the church need to bring into a world that is confused, that is on unstable foundations, that's questioning, that's searching, that's longing, that's looking. What does the world need the church to be? And what is it that the church offers that the world may not? These three things, faith, hope, and love. We'll just flesh this out for a little bit and then we'll, we'll pray. The first thing that we need to embody and we need to bring and that we do have to offer is faith, right? Faith in times of fear. Okay, faith in times of fear. Two weeks ago, I was sitting at the beginning of worship service, about 10, 20, 10 minutes before service started, looking over things and, and just getting my heart ready. And one of our middle schoolers came and sat next to me. And I said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm feeling sore because I uh, ran and did push-ups and things like that. And I said, oh, you know, I'm sorry about that. I think you'll, you'll get better soon. And then he said, but actually, um, that's not why um, I'm, I'm scared. I'm scared. And I said, why are you scared? And he went on to tell me about the election. I'm scared because there's going to be a nuclear war if so-and-so becomes president. I'm scared because Russia is telling people that they need to find their nearest bomb shelter, but Americans are not doing it. I'm I'm, I'm scared. And I just said a a few words uh, from Scripture to hopefully give enough comfort to time down until today to get to where we are. But if it's any poor consolation prize, uh, the fear that he felt is multiplied over and over and over and over and over amongst the citizens of America. Fear is one of the dominant emotions that people are feeling right now. In fact, 52% of people, according to the American Psychological Institution Association, the APA, 52% of people pre-election said they were scared and stressed because of the election. 52% 52% of people. And I would venture to say that post-election, those fears have skyrocketed even, even more. Uh, during the election, I heard that 55% of Democrats were fearful of Republicans. And 49% of, Ameri- of Republicans were fearful of Democrats. That's half of the country, by and large, is afraid. As we talked at our, at our prayer meeting, you know, people were saying, yeah, that's one of the main emotions that people are feeling in that prayer meeting in our church is fear. Fear of tomorrow, fear of what's going to happen, all of these different fears because of the fact that we have a new president-elect. 
But what the Bible tells us here, as Paul writes to the church, he writes to the church, is that faith is one of the hallmarks of the people of God, something that we can offer and something that we have that the world doesn't have. Why are people scared? I'll tell you the one reason. In one word, why people are scared. Trump. (laughs) That's why people are scared. Those who voted for him are scared. I'm sorry. Those who didn't vote for him are obviously scared because there's a reason they didn't vote for him. But those who did vote for him are fearful of the the response of those who did not vote for him. And so there's this sense of fear of what's going to happen. And you can see this rising up in rioting and bickering and anger. But can I tell you something? The reason why so many people, if I can just, if I can just a, a gospel analysis here, I think the reason why so many people are fearful is because their ultimate hope for our nation is found in either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And if, if, hey, listen, we cannot have eight more years of this, therefore we need to have Trump. We cannot have an egotistical, maniacal, misogynistic person in the White House. We've got to go. Because our ultimate hope is found in who runs the White House. For a lot of people in our nation, that's why there's so much fear. Because, and I, okay, let me disclaimer here. Faith, hope, and love. You've got to hear all of these things. I don't want you to dismiss me and say, oh, he's, he's kind of got his head in the clouds. We're going to get all the way through, and I, you, you've got to see this as a whole. But the first thing we need to exercise is faith. The reason why so many people are shaken to the very core. Listen, this is the very biblical understanding of idolatry. When all of our hope for significance, stability, security, worth and value are found in something, when that something is taken away from us, we will fight with everything within us in order to get that thing back. And the reason why so many people, are, their lives have been completely flipped upside down is because their hope has been put in, in, in Hillary Clinton. And when they didn't get that, they feel like everything is falling apart because that's all we've got. Apart from Christ, that's all we've got is who leads our government, who runs the White House. That's all we have. And therefore, when the idol becomes a person and that person is removed, then we will fight tooth and nail in order to get that thing in the place of power that we believe it should be. And others who who want Trump to be there so badly, all of their hope for America becoming great again, whatever that means, has been placed in him. And therefore, they will fight and they will step on anybody who does not agree with their understanding of how this world is going to be made better. But we have a better place to put our hope. Did you know that the Bible says in Romans 13, 1, there is no authority established apart from that which God ordains. Okay, this we put our hope, our faith in, because faith is not some all blind faith that somehow everything is going to work out okay. No, that's not what the Bible is saying at all. Saying our faith is placed in certain verifiable, unshakable, undeniable realities. And here's your reality. Donald Trump has been elected president of the United States of America. He has not been chosen king of kings and the Lord of lords over all of creation. There is no square inch in all of creation over which Jesus Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. Abraham Kuyper, we as a people of God need to exercise this kind of faith in times like this. In fact, not only, right, not only do we understand, throughout history, if you understand throughout history, the sovereign Lord of all of creation has ordained people worse than Donald Trump, 
if you think he's bad, to be put into positions of power so that the purposes of God can be accomplished. King Nebuchadnezzar, the evil king of Babylon who destroyed the people of Israel and brought them into a foreign land. God used him to accomplish his redemptive purposes. It's the Pharaoh, that cruel, heartless, slave-driving leader of Egypt to oppress the Israelites in order that a deliverer would rise up who would point the eyes of all the people of God to the true Savior who would lead us out of our eternal slavery. Pontius Pilate, King Herod, the massacre of innocence, the sentencing of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All of these people arose in order that the purposes of God could be accomplished in that generation, in that place, because God was still on his throne. And we have to understand that. God, listen, God, we woke up on Wednesday morning shocked, surprised, in awe. But I promise you that God did not wake up on Wednesday morning. Look at Fox News, CNN. Orlando Sentinel. He didn't Google U.S. President Donald Trump. Oh, my gosh. What the? I pushed the Hillary Clinton. Bl-. He didn't say that. There's been some, I demand a recount. Florida, you did it again. No, he didn't say that. He slept just fine. He didn't sleep, but he was just fine. And the world will go on because God is on his sovereign throne. You know, when, when, when the Christmas accounts were written by Luke, okay, when Luke wrote the gospel, historical account of Jesus Christ being born. He said that in the 10th year of the rule of Quirinius, who was governor of Syria. Why did he write that? Why didn't he just say in the year, you know, 0 AD or 3 AD or 5 BC? Why didn't he say that? Because in those days, okay, in those days, the way that you measured time was by according to who was ruling. And so they said in the 10th year of the reign of King David, In the 40th year of Jehoiakim, king of Israel. So he says, in the reign of king, in the reign of Quirinius, who was governor of Syria. But why is it that today, we don't say today is November 16th in the reign of the fourth year, the eighth year of king of President Barack Obama? Why don't we say that? Because as soon as Jesus was born, everything changed. So we say today is November 13th year 2016 AD, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Something happened in human history with the coming of Jesus where everything changed, everything was different, and nothing has been the same since then. Kings will rise and kings will fall, and Donald Trump on November, whatever it was, Election Day 2016, became president, was elected president of the United States in the year 2016, in the year of our Lord. God is still in control. And unless we believe this as our foundation and we exercise faith in this unshakable reality that nothing happens in all of human history that is apart from the sovereign will and knowledge and purpose of God, then we'll be driven by fear. But what the church of Jesus Christ offers is a faith in the face of fear that the world cannot give. And so the first thing he says is have faith. The second thing that we see is hope in times of despair. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. Again, for those who did not want Donald Trump to become president, there's despair. 
all these years of, of, of laboring and all these years of, of, of hoping and all these years of progress, some say have been set back by I don't know how many years now. And there's a sense of despair. Everything we worked for, we're ready to break through that glass ceiling, but then it remains intact in New York City. And there's a sense of despair. That where are we going as a nation? Where is everything headed? What is going on in our world and what hope do we have? There's despair, this sense of despair all around when you talk to some people. I, yeah, it's a difficult thing, I understand. Right? So, I mean, that's, why, that's why people don't like talking about politics and religion because there's going to be opinions everywhere. But what he says, what Paul says, what the church offers is we offer hope in times of despair. See, it's, it's one thing to faith. Faith is a certain expectation. But hope is a joyful expectation that something is going to come out of this. I know it's very difficult at this point to experience joy. I understand that wherever you stand, because our nation is so divided. But faith without hope is incomplete, and hope without faith is non-existent. So there has to be this wedding together of if there is this faith in the promises of God and that God remains on his throne, then the result is hope in the face of despair. And hope is best manifest as we pray. And if we know that there's a God in heaven, there has to be a movement, there has to be an action, and that faith-driven hope is manifest as we pray. This is one of the things that the Bible writers have been saying all along. I think it's in First, uh, First Timothy 2, 1 and 2. It says, remember that prayer should be made for all kings and for all people in authority. I, I want to read to you what one, uh, what one author writes in regards to that command that Paul gave to pray for our leaders. John Stott, a great commentary in First Timothy, says, when Paul told Timothy to pray for kings, the reigning emperor was Nero, whose vanity, cruelty, and hostility to the Christian faith were widely known. The persecution of the church, spasmodic at first, was soon to become systematic, and Christians were understandably apprehensive, yet they had recourse to prayer. And what is it? And this is something for 2,000 years, that passage has been in Scripture, but it's something that many of us are only now beginning to cite and to quote, and I stand convicted in this area as well. I remember eight years ago when President Obama was elected, I stood and I preached a sermon that we need to pray for our government officials, our elected officials, we need to pray for our leaders, we need to pray for our president. But I know that I failed on many occasions to practice what I preach about praying for our leaders. And it's gotten to this point where all of a sudden we're realizing as a church we need to be doing these things that we haven't been doing. Now more than ever, I think many people I've talked to have prayed more for their president in these last four days than they have in the past in in our entire lifetime. Because we're realizing that we sleep in the bed that we make. And the call of God for believers has always been to pray for your leaders, to pray for your people, to pray for the people that God has put into positions of authority in order that they might accomplish the purposes of God. But that's not all that we pray for. We pray for our nation. And I've been, I, I've been saying this ever since I heard Pastor Min Chung of, of, in, in Illinois say this. But I really believe in my heart, y'all. Really believe in my heart that one weeping prophet can still save a nation. 
when God gets people who are burdened for a nation that we realize either it's judgment or revival, there's no middle ground here. And we fall to our knees and we pray. In, in 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14, this famous passage that is, is used in prayer rallies all around every nation, says when the, uh, when the heavens are shut up, when there's famine on the land, when there's drought in the land, when the locusts eat all of the crops. In the Old Testament times, that was a certain sign that God's judgment was coming. The curses in nature and in war. And in nature, when the crops were dying, when, when, when famine and drought were here, it was a certain sign that God's disfavor was on the people of God because they had not fulfilled their covenant obligations. And in a time like this where we see what seems like the hand of God against our country, what do we do? I don't want to say that. It, it, I'm not going to get too deeply into it. But what do we do when it seems like our nation is disintegrating what did, what did God say? What did God say through Solomon? What did he say to his people? He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. He didn't say the problem is those people out there who voted for that. The problem is those people out there who have an anti-Christian agenda. He said, no, 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 no. It's not about them out there. He said, when these things happen, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray in repentance and turn from their wicked ways because at the heart of it, am I any different from the people out there? Am I any less sinful than anyone else who doesn't know Jesus? My heart is wicked, is awful, is prideful, is lazy, is greedy, is all of these things as much as anybody else is. The only thing is by the grace of God, I've been led to repentance, but I'm no different from anybody else. And the call of God upon us as a church is in hope. Don't look out there and blame them, but in hope to say, hey, there's hope in God in prayer. That if we repent, if we turn, if we pray for our nation, that our God will be gracious to us. One weeping prophet can still save a nation. I know that there's so much that's being said and put out there. And I think we as Christians have to be mindful of this. Okay? I know that one of the main places of, of, of communicating what we believe and what we value is on social media. And there are times to process. We need to process through all of these things. But we may need to exercise a little bit more wisdom in communicating the hope of Christ and the faith of Christ in times like this. It doesn't mean that we minimize the reality of where we are as a nation. But we do so with a hope and a faith that the world cannot offer and that the world cannot have. In every period in our nation's history, you talk about the early 1700s, the early 1800s, the 1850s, three great awakenings happened in America. And it all came at a time when America looked like it was going down the drain, whether it was people living in sin when Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield arose. It was a a, a secular, just a, a mass outbreak of sexual immorality in the 1800s. The 1850s in New York City, a, a man named Jeremiah Lamphere, 1848, just felt the burn of God. We've got to pray for our nation. And at first in those prayer meetings, only a handful, a couple people came out. But very soon after, the stock market crashed in New York. People lost their jobs. People were desperate. And those prayer meetings began packed with hundreds and thousands of people. And they said through that third great awakening in the 1800s, mid-1800s, over a million people came to know the Lord God in that great awakening as a result of the prayers of the people of God. And we're not a people of despair. The, the question of Psalm 85 is, Lord, will you not revive us again? 
And I believe this with all of my heart, guys. We're a, we're a people at a crossroads, but God hears the prayers of his people. When we get desperate enough to actually move to God in prayer, there's a powerful thing that can happen in this place, in this country, in our lives. Faith, hope, the last thing. But the greatest of these is love. We need to exercise faith, definitely, that God is in control. We need to have hope and we need to pray. But can I tell you that that is woefully incomplete if we end there? Because if I can be honest, that's what I'm hearing from most people in the church. We've got to trust that God is sovereign. We've got to trust that God is sovereign. We've got to have hope. We've got to believe. And these things are, I mean, this is the bedrock. But if we end there, it is a painfully incomplete expression of what the church needs to be in a time like this. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. And this holy triumvirate of virtues seen countless times through the scripture in these ways, I think at least seven times in the New Testament, Paul has said the church is the expression of faith and hope and love. So we say, yeah, you know, we can do all these things. We can have faith and we can have hope. But the third thing we need to do is we need to love in times of hatred and in times of apathy. See, the the, the response of, of many people has been to move towards hatred. And you've seen these accounts of over 200 uh, in America, over 200 accounts of people who, and again, you take this for what it's worth. This is from the media. 200 accounts of, they say, election-driven violence and prejudice against people because of their sexual orientation, because of their ethnic background, because they're women, because they voted for a person that, I don't agree with, whatever the case might be. But over 200 accounts of this, there's anger, there's hatred, there's violence. And then there's others who say, no way, I would never do that. But there's a sense of apathy that says, I voted for Trump. I'm cool with it. Right? I don't need to do anything. Or this sense in which, yeah, I know that there might be people who are upset about it, but that's, that's not my issue. That's not my deal because it doesn't affect me. But the posture of the church is in understanding faith and in understanding hope. And we move towards love because this is a very real issue and a very real struggle where people woke up to a nightmare and they went to sleep and they woke up the next day and the nightmare continues for what they think is going to be four more years because the oppression, because of the antagonism, because of the hatred that they face. It's not enough. For us to just say, trust in God, his plan is good. We need to do that. We need to communicate that. But we cannot stop there. And another time, I remember uh, one of my friends uh, posted this online when he talked about um, back in the civil rights movement, and someone told Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., just, you know, you're, you're a minister of the gospel. Just trust, just be patient, just wait. You don't need to march. You don't need to protest. This is what he said. He said, perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, 
when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you're humiliated day and night by nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes a derogatory term, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are. Your last name becomes John. And your wife and mother are never given the respected title, Mrs. When you're harried by day, haunted by night, by the fact that you're a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments when you're forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why you find it difficult to wait. What's my point? I'm not, listen, guys, I'm not, I'm not trying to communicate a political stance at all. Listen, I, I can put my cards on the table. I'm not pro-Trump, nor am I pro-Hillary Clinton. I'm not. I'm just saying, There are people in our world, in our country, in our schools, in your family who feel like to simply say trust when I get picked on at school. How can I do that? To simply say just wait and trust and pray when my life feels like it's threatened. That's not enough. Faith and hope are great, but the greatest of these is love. It may have nothing to do with you, and you may be in such a, in such a multicultural school that this, these things don't matter. That's great, and praise God that we've come that far. But I just don't want us to be unsympathetic to the pleas of the people for whom this really hurts. And I think we as a church embody the love of Christ in times like this. That we lend a, a listening ear to somebody. Instead of saying, oh, these people don't agree with me, let me give them a piece of my mind. And Voskamp says, let's give them a piece of our heart. Let's open our hearts. Let's open our hands. Because you see, this is where the church has always been at its finest. When we've been pushed to the margins, when we've become the minority in a culture, when it's no longer the moral majority, but when we've been relegated to a minority and we begin to realize that we are a missional minority and we have a very powerful purpose in this discussion and in the lives of people who struggle. It's in the fourth century when Emperor Julian tried to exterminate all of the Christians through persecution, massive persecution. He said, whatever I do, I cannot get rid of them. Why? He said, because the Christians loved Rome more than Rome did themselves. That when the plagues broke out and everyone was discarding the broken lives and the hurting people who were contagious, it was the Christians who moved in and brought these people into their homes. Some of them even contracted the diseases themselves. When women who were so devalued in Roman culture 
were thrown to the wayside. When babies were born and, and the fathers didn't want a baby girl and they threw them out, it was the Christians who went into the trash heap and rescued these girls and gave them dignity and within the church gave them positions of leadership. They sacrificed their reputation. They sacrificed their health. They sacrificed their dignity. And they're standing in Rome in order that they could exercise the faith, the hope, and the love that we alone have. Why? Why do they sacrifice? Because they realize we can sacrifice for others because there's one who sacrificed for us. And in knowing that love, this remains forever. As we exercise faith, open love, can I remind you? Yeah, it's absolutely true that God is still sovereign on his throne. But 2,000 years ago, he left the throne. And he came into the dirty corners of our world. And he walked the streets of injustice. In fact, if ever there was a victim of hate, of oppression, of unjust treatment and violence against him, it was he who spread out his arms upon the cross for sinful human beings like you and me. It's not people out there, but people like us. He gave his life for And he says, with open hands, I give to you. With open hearts, I bleed for you. To be my hands and be my feet and be my heart and be my hope in times of need. Faith, hope, and love is what the world needs. Let's pray. Brothers and sisters, I, I want you to listen And hear these words, not with ears of, not with ears that filter through the politics, but just hear the call of God, the voice of love, to see not through the eyes of a party, but to just come before the word of God. And the word of God does not change the call that he's placed upon us, whether you agree politically or not with what's been happening in our nation. The call of God remains for us to be the church. So let's pray, Lord, who are the people in my life? Who are the people in my life who may need the love that I have? the faith, the hope that I have? Who are the people in my life? Who are the people to whom I can go? What do I need to do? Informed by my Christian faith, informed by the gospel, where do I go? How do I live now in light of all these things? Let's take a couple moments to pray. Then I'll pray for us and then we'll continue to worship the Lord and respond to him. Let's pray together for a couple moments. Pray for our president-elect. Pray for our nation. 
We're in need of God's grace. The only answer to what ills America and the world is not political, it's spiritual. It's as clear as day. And yet our, our, our Christianity, our spirituality certainly is worked out through politics and public policy. Yeah, so we labor for that. But our ultimate hope is in Christ. And unless he drives us, there will be a constant sense of despair and hopelessness. Let's pray for our leaders. Let's pray for our country. Let's pray for those who are feeling oppressed and afraid. Let's spend a few moments praying and then I'll close for us. that you do remain on your throne. Thank you that nothing that happens in this world will ever shake you from it. Your position is not up for election. Your term will never end. Father, everything that you do is not an accident. And so help us, one, to trust and then two, to move in response to your word. What we don't know, we don't know. The secret things remain hidden to us. But what we do know, the revealed will of God, you're calling us to live out. And so many things we don't know in this time of confusion and questioning. But that which we do, faith, hope, love, may we live out well for your glory, for the healing of a nation, for the witness of the church to a world in need. We thank you. May we arise for such a time as this, making inroads and change wherever we can and praying for a broader renewal that our world so desperately needs. We thank you. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.